Hello, my name is Jubal McGowan, and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation, who are a US-based non-profit organization. If you're curious about what they do, you can go to their website, epicprojects.org. My guest today is the author, historian, and disability activist, Glenn Young. By using the skills he learned from radical politics in the fire of 1960s America, he rose to become the national expert on learning disabilities in adulthood for the US government. His own dyslexia diagnosis came at the age of 30 when he was also diagnosed with ADHD. As a result of his work, he became well-known nationally and internationally as a lecturer on learning difficulty issues, lecturing in many countries, including the UK, Russia, China and Latvia. After seven years of recovering from a collapse of his immune system in 2003, Glenn turned to writing full-time. At first, he limited his efforts to essays, but as his health improved, he transitioned into working on longer and more extensive projects requiring years of research. He says he is most happiest exploring ancient historical sites few people ever visit. As always, this is a podcast to support the brilliant work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of dyslexic people so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. And they have a free online screening tool which you can use to assess yourself or a loved one for dyslexia. Both myself and Glenn are massive uh, history buffs. So it was, uh, it was fascinating to talk to somebody who clearly has, uh, has a huge, rich personal history um, and experienced lots in the 60s um, in America and in uh, the UK as well. Um, so you, we'll get into it in the episode. It's, it's, uh, it's a really exciting, very in-depth chat, and I hope you enjoy it. All right. Hello. Hello, Glenn. Uh, well, welcome. Thank you. Um, so where are, where are you in the world? Um, how is life right now? Uh, for context, guys, we're, we're recording on the 29th of December. Um, it's been, been a little while since we've, um, since we've recorded. Uh, so you forgive us if, if I'm a bit rusty. But yeah, Glenn, so, so, so where are you in the world? Uh, I live in Seattle, Washington State, in the, which is about you know, eight time zones away from you guys. Uh, <laughs> yes. And it's uh, a bit odd uh, because we got five inches of snow the other day. And so the city kind of shuts down because the city, even though it's very far north, and right near the Canadian border and only about um, 150 miles away from Vancouver or British Columbia, we hardly ever get snow because we have all kinds of currents and stuff like that that keeps the real cold weather away from us. So just to get right. the fact that we get snow just really, it was the day after Christmas, so we didn't get away Christmas, but we almost did. Right. Well, that's, that's familiar for us as Brits because we really don't have the infrastructure for extremity. Um, yeah. We're sort of uh, a nation of people who are constantly surprised by the weather. <laughs> you know, we sort of like, I think we all want to be Mediterranean and we're all like, can you yes. believe how cold it is? It's ridiculous how cold it is. But we live obviously in the Northern Hemisphere in the Northern part of 
Europe and we're seemingly constantly surprised by it. And whenever a, a big snowstorm comes, everything stops. Or yes. whenever there's extreme heat, everyone stops. Well, you got the transatlantic current to keep you warm and somewhere there should be a song there, but I can't come up with it that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, if you do, then then please send it, send it. Okay, I will try. <laughs> um, okay, so, so how long have you been... Um, uh, in Seattle? Uh, off and on for 50 years. Um, actually, 1972 will mark the, the 50th anniversary of me stumbling into the town. Uh, and it's a quite different town than when I first came here. And it was all pre-Microsoft and all that kind of stuff. So it was more of a frontier right. town. The nickname of the city is the uh, Emerald City, and it really does look like something out of the Wizard of Oz these days. It's just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and highly developed and one of the most modern cities in the world outside of China, I think. Yeah. But when I came, it was very different. And then I left for a number of years. Uh, about So I wasn't here consistently for 50 years. I, I worked, uh, I ended up working for the federal government and moving to um, Washington, D.C. for about 12 years. And then uh, I went to a few other places and then came back. Great. We're going to get to all that good stuff, um, your, your work with the federal government, for sure. Um, but you grew up um, in the projects. You grew up in a, in a project in, in Seattle. Am I right? I actually grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. Ah, and, right. Okay. And, and, it was, you know, and, then, and then moved to San Francisco. And I was actually there in San Francisco during the entire 60s, which was quite the experience. And of course, then, yeah. Uh, uh, off and on, I was moved out of there. I was living in housing projects and other places uh, because we were very poor and we were had a very dysfunctional family. But that's, it was off and on. I was being shifted among relatives for a while. Um, but yeah, so I actually did not have a consistent and uh, traditional linear childhood, let's put it that way. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Again, we want to come back to that. But let's talk about um, San Fran. Let's talk about San Fran in the 60s. I mean, it was at the forefront with London of, of you know, alternative culture and anti-war movement. and Yes, yes. And I was all involved in that. And I was, you know, every weekend from like 1966 to 1960, beginning of 69, every weekend I was in one of the dance halls, you know, seeing every band that existed and... And uh, so you name a band from that era, and I saw them and multiple times. Yeah. And that was back in the day when you had three bands playing in a con, you know, and each band did two sets, and it cost three dollars. So that was a lot of fun in those days. Wow, <laughs> wow! And it does again. It feels like a very, um, a very different era. You know, it feels yes. it almost feels like hundreds of years ago. Um, it's incredible. You know, like. It, the most recent thing we've had, of course, is is COVID, yeah. and there's life before it, and there's life after it, and there's. Right. I, I don't know if it felt this way for you, but I, I just finished an amazing book called Chaos, which is about um, uh, uh, Manson and the Manson murders, and how yes, that was the yes. end. That was the the end of uh, you know hippie culture because uh, there's a lot of other things that happened that was much more impacting, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it sort of feels like, you know, around that time, there's, it might be Vietnam as well that, that shifts yes. people's yes. perception as, as, as well of, of uh, you know, that movement towards, you know, love and, and uh, experimenting right. with mind-altering drugs and things like that. And, and Well, know. I was very active in the anti-war movement. I, as a matter of fact, uh, in 
one weekend in D.C., I was arrested five different times doing civil disobedience. Amazing. Uh, I was I was arrested several other times. And th- that was when there's like, you know, several hundred thousands, if not millions of people who are in the street uh, demonstrating. Yeah. And I was just, I was no way in a leadership position, but I was just one of the masses, so to speak, uh, doing those demonstrations. And I actually went to some very good anti-war demonstrations in, in London when I was there in 1969. And um, so, you know, it wasn't just in the U.S., but the, the war definitely had a, a mean of souring, sou- souring, however you pronounce yes. that word, um, yes. the, the whole era. And unfortunately, m- most people think of it as like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And there was an awful lot of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but there was also an awful lot of effort to change the world socially and politically and fighting racism, fighting segregation, fighting the war, fighting poverty, things like that. It was a different era. It was a very different era. Completely. I mean, I find that people who have that that very cynical view of it as a, you know, just a time where people took loads of drugs and had sex and went to Woodstock or Glastonbury are, are quite apolitical people themselves. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't um, fully appreciate, you know, the huge things. I mean, certainly here... You know, um, homosexuality was legalized. Women could get the contraceptive pill. Right. You know, huge. Th- those are huge social changes, yep. um, which arguably are, are, are probably more important for certainly for feminism and and female rights and gaining equality than than anything else. Well, even in the states here, there was the effort to politicize what was going on in the concept of what was called Woodstock Nation, which didn't right. last very long and was actually buried very within a year or so with the the events that happened at Altamont. You know, the Rolling Stones held a concert near San Francisco and made the huge mistake of hiring the Hells Angels, which oh, was a, yes. as security, yes. and they ended up killing people, and it was yes. a mess. And that kind of ended the crushed. concept. Yeah, well, not just crutch. No, the angels were beating them up yeah. and killing them. Yeah, and the angels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if you ever want to hear a, a song that, um, uh-oh, now I'm blanking out, but it's a Grateful Dead song, New Speedway Boogie, that's the name of it, and it's on Working Man's Dead album. And that song is all about Altamont and how it ended um, the hippie culture, so to speak. Well, again, I mean, you seem to be, I mean, in these these uh, incredible flashpoints for like social change or, you know, social movements. So you're in London in 69, San Francisco from 66 to 69, where you're sort of at the forefront of like, you know, new Western culture developing. I well, mean, that's, that's exciting. To quote Paul, um, Simon and Garfunkel, oh, what a time it was, a time of innocence. Uh, yes. So we kind of, you know, it, it was something that was, um, we we you know we could change the world, rearrange the world. To quote another song from that era, and and some of us like me kept doing it after it became less popular. So actually, a lot of my life from like when I first came to Seattle, but actually doing it uh, long before that was um, working on what. I don't even know the terminology that is used, but we say community organizing. And we were there uh, doing things to try to help the communities that were without 
resources of, of many, a, a lot of kinds. So, so we were, I was like um, working with groups that were uh, opening up health clinics uh, in the United States, helping women get abortions when abortions were, it was illegal in a lot of places. We, you know, later on, we, I actually organized and operated and ran a food cooperative in a very poor community that had no other source for groceries and stuff. Uh, in Seattle, when I first came here, I did, it took me about a year to help get it started. And then I managed it for four years uh, uh, after. So I was political in the sense of not being a, a doctrinaire Marxist-Leninist. Uh, I was kind of like an, what I, I referred to as an American anarchist, um, which was uh, this, we had a historical group called uh, the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, about 100 years before me, uh, and they were kind of my model. One of my ways of self-educating is I actually went to Chicago in the in 1967, I think it was, and hung out with all these very aged people who had been part of that organization. They were in their 80s. I was 17, 18, and they, were, they just so happy that anyone wanted to hear their stories again, that they told me all their stories. And <laughs> that, was, that was a way for me to gain a lot of information on labor history and the struggles of in the past that had not been in, would never show up in textbooks. Um, yeah, so I, I, I had an advantage of, part of the advantage of me being really relatively homeless, footloose, without family connection or support, I could go wherever I wanted to do and talk to whoever I wanted to, I could, I could get to talk to, and I did an awful lot of that. And, and so while I was not in formal education, I was getting myself highly educated uh, by first-hand discussion, let's put it that way. Right, and, and I'd, I'd love to get a sense of, uh, so that worldview um, uh, and, and that way of interpreting, you know, human struggle, um, is that, was that formed by your own your life experience? Was it formed by, you know, environment, uh, parents, or, or, or did it, when those ideas, you first came into contact with them, you were like, okay, these, this, makes, this makes sense. And like you say, that those aren't necessary things, certainly as like an American was, you know, obviously before you had the McCarthy uh, witch trials, you know, right, right, people right. were expelled from the States for, for, right. um, for those sorts of worldviews. And... First of all, it was kind of like, the, it was all around you. And if you just had to jump in anywhere you could, because remember, this was the first time like mass civil disobedience was being televised. And that started yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah, I'm on five or six when when the civil rights demonstrations in southern United States were actually being televised. And yeah. then in the 19, early 1960s, you had what was called the Freedom Riders, where white people were going into the South and uh, helping uh, break segregation stuff and yeah. and stuff like that. And uh, there's a great line from a a, a song by the band called. Uh, the song is the night they drove old Dixie down. And it says, like my brother before me, I took a rebel stand. And yeah. my older brother was very active in that level. Uh, he wasn't, he was getting arrested, going to jail for civil rights demonstrations uh, when he was, you know, he's like five, six years older than me. And so um, 
I knew what he was doing and, and I, he was kind of one of my role models. Uh, and, um, so, so I, it was both all around and also within the family, but definitely, definitely not for my parents. My parents were, you know, not very progressive, let's put it that way. Right. I see. One of the things that made me, I think, very important in what is the dyslexia movement is that when I came into it, I came into it very differently than most of the people I met who were involved in it. Most of the people I met who were on the organizational level and leadership level were mainly parents saying, fix my kid. And that they were most interested in ways and means to make their own kids competitive and successful. And I came into it from a different point of view, which, you know, in modern terminology would say is a consumer because I was highly dyslexic. No one knew about it for a very long time. And I went through a lot of interventions, which we can talk about uh, in order to make myself more functional. But I came in both arguing from the point of view, don't fix me. Let me fix myself. Let me find my own place. And also I came into it with that leftist headset of action and, yeah. and, and reshaping the world. And so yeah. I came into it much more from a disability civil rights point of view than uh, a, a fix my kids point of view, which yeah. didn't make me very popular with the existing organizations, but it made me very popular <laughs> with the disability <laughs> civil rights groups that were like physical disability groups and, 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 and blind and things like that and the paraplegic community because I was speaking using their language and their terminologies and their justifications to talk about the needs of people with dyslexia. My, uh, my radical youth, so to speak, brought me into the dyslexia yeah. world with a very different point of view. Of course. Of course it did. Well, let's talk about your journey then to diagnosis, because as you say, like it was, it was, it was later in life um, that right. you you came to your diagnosis. Right. So I think, like most people in my generation, uh, it came about because of my children, my one daughter. Yes. So my daughter was obviously the most brilliant, wonderful, gifted girl in the world, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And we wanted to get her into a school, and the public schools well, our term public school, uh, didn't really didn't really have much to offer her. And so we looked around for the schools that you paid for, which we obviously couldn't really afford very much, but we decided to at least check them out. And, um, and at this point, I was just petrified of schools. I, I hated the whole concept of schools. I, I wouldn't even go to a rock concert at a university because I didn't want not to be anywhere near <laughs> any kind of thing because I had been so unsuccessful and made to feel so inadequate by being in the education system. But here's yes. my, I'm 30 and, you know, I got a kid who's six, five. And so we take her to this school to get her tested to see if she would qualify. And that, that was kind of no risk, I thought. And so Mm. when the head of the school was explaining the tests to us, meaning her mother and I, I kept on making kind of my remarks like, oh, that's 
that's the part of these tests I always mess up on. And I said it a couple, three times, and she stopped and looked at me, and she said, oh, I bet you don't read too well. I bet you can't spell. I bet, you know, you have problems with memory. And I'm going, I met this woman five minutes ago, and she knows all my deep box secrets. How the hell did this happen? I had hidden this from everyone I could in the world, and then all of a sudden this woman knows it. And she said, the weaknesses you talked about in these type of tests is indicators of someone with dyslexia. Well, she used the term learning disabilities, but it was dyslexia. And I said, learning disabilities, what's that? I had no idea, never heard of it. And so my partner had health insurance and was able to get me tested in formal process. And it came out clear as a bell that I had severe uh, dyslexia and also a few other things and ADHD as well. And I never heard of of any of these terms and any of these things in, uh, ever in my life before. So she took me kicking and screaming because I was very defensive and very resistant to, you know, and being in an education system at all. And she took me to a private tutor. And this woman turned out to be, a, you know, an old socialist herself and said, hmm. oh, I'll, I'll charge you very little and I'll just charge those rich kids a lot more. And so you come to me and we'll work out what you can afford. And so I started, I stayed with her for three and a half years. And I started at the very, very basics of going A, 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 because I had no ability to distinguish fine tones. Mm-hmm. And my daughter at that time, when she was five or six, was more, far more advanced than I was phonemically. And she was the one who was doing flashcards with me, teaching, making sure that I get the sounds right. So instead of me teaching her the sounds of the alphabet, she was teaching me the sounds of the alphabet. <laughs> I should note that I was extremely fortunate that I had fallen into a job when I stopped doing the community organizing. I had fallen into a job where I made a lot of money without any literacy skills. And it was uh, working at sporting events, running up and down the steps, selling beer. Uh, right. So, and I was on a commission and I worked my butt off and I made a lot of money. So I could actually afford, even even with the reduced rate, I could afford what she was, the tutor was charging me and also help maintain a family because of this very bizarre job that I was working that was all based on the success of our sports teams, which weren't always that successful, let me put it that way. <laughs> For me, my own journey with my dyslexia, I, I learned to read via flashcards as well. Right. Um, I would I would sketch, you know, um, if it was the letter F, you know, a frog, um, because I was, I, was, I was quite into, uh, you know, creativity in terms of art and stuff like that. So, so yeah, that's, that, um, that brought that back for me. But when you... I know, I know there's a big difference in our ages. And by the time you were doing it, there was a lot of accepted scientific approaches for that type of intervention. When I was doing it, it was still relatively uh, unusual, especially for adults to get that. Uh, yes. So I, what I keep on stressing, when I did all these speeches and I worked for the government and I was being a consumer advocate and all this kind of stuff, is I kept on stressing that um, my intervention was an outlier. 
I was not the norm. I was not mm. the type of interventions I got, the type of success I ended up getting, the type of supports that I ended up getting, which made me into the success that I had, was not cheap and not accessible. And, mm. and that made me more of an outlier than a model, a role model. Because, for example, even with the um, uh, reduced rate, I ended up spending about $10,000 over the, and that's when $10,000 was a lot of money over the course of three years uh, to get the tutoring. Normally, if she had charged me normal rate, it would have been about $60,000. Wow. And so the average amount of money that the federal government was putting into adult literacy classes per student when I was working for the feds was $150. Wow. So you compare what the average ordinary person was getting as far as intervention and how much I was able to generate and actually do it. It's, it's, it just made me an extreme outlier. I was not, I was very, and, and that's why I kept on arguing is that within the feds, I was saying, you guys are causing people to go through the same thing over and over again that they had failed in before. They, you stick them in the classroom and you try to teach them as an adult what they couldn't do as a kid, and you expect different results, and that's the sign of insanity. So we got to come yes. up with something new and different to try to deal with this type of stuff. And, you know, some, that's, that's the message I was creating was the new and different approach that was affordable because I knew not everyone could do it from the, the cost, that, the amount of resources I was able to put into it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't want to have you under any false apprehension. Um, so I was incredibly fortunate. My mom is, is, a, is, a, is a radical socialist herself and she uh, was just severely dyslexic and grew up in the 50s when she was called stupid and, and um, right. you know, you, you weren't called dyslexic or, or you were just lazy or stupid and, or you didn't have the aptitude. Um, I think the English term I learned about this was thick. Right, thick. Exactly, you were yeah. thick. Right. That's okay. exactly it. She was right. called thick, and um, she she became a, a labour councillor and quite involved with my my primary school and pushed from a very early age um, that I was to get support. Um, and she was she was formerly working class, but you know became middle class by virtue of being a councillor and by a lecturer. Um, so she fought tooth and nail. Um, and got, you know, all the support that she could for me. I mean, I, I was alone in this hut. You know, it wasn't like I had a group of other dyslexic kids around me. I was alone um, having one-on-one -on -one support from somebody. And again, you know, the, the getting screened for dyslexia is quite um, expensive. It's still in this, certainly in the UK, uh, it, it's, it, there's a figure, something around five, 600 quid a year that um, parents have to pay additionally you know, in order to get them the support they that they need, um, so yep. it still it puts uh, immense pressure on the parents of uh, people with dyslexia, um, and it's and it you know it should be something that is is just there at every single school. Well, the thing is, is that in the U.S. there are the laws that require it, and and over the course of the last thirty years, the laws have been incredibly weakened. And we're almost, not quite, but almost back to this place we were in the 60s and 70s. Uh, there, is, wow. there, is, there is something called IDEA, which stands for Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. 
which is what deals with the K-12 population, um, meaning in, in the public's I keep on using the term public schools, and I know in England that means something different yeah. than what it means here. But in, in yes. the government-run schools, and it requires the schools to do testing. It requires the schools to provide interventions and tutoring and all that kind of stuff. And that's one of the reasons that it got so weakened is that the schools hated paying for all of this. And so they yeah. ended up fighting as much as they could to, re- to reduce the services that they were required and over the course of, you know, the last 40, 30, 40 years, the, the amount of interventions is, is very, uh, has rolled back a great deal. But it's still light years ahead of where it was when I was a kid. Yeah. And it sounds like when your mom was a kid. Well, is it, was it um, equally something that caused you, I mean, it sounds like your experience in school was, was, was unhappy. Did that then, has that shaped your internal politics? See, I mean, it sounds like you were very reticent to, you know, put your daughter through it, given how traumatic it was for you. Right, right. I was, you know, it, clearly I was, I felt apart from that system a great deal. And, yeah. and yet I managed to get through it. So I didn't, I, I didn't drop out, you know, I managed mm. to get through. And I actually even went to a, a, a high school that was considered, uh, it was a regional high school for smart kids. And I had no idea how I got in. I had no idea how I survived. And I had <laughs> no idea, you know, how I could graduate. And the, I, but part of the answer is that it was San Francisco in the 1960s. So instead yeah. of me writing papers, I did things like make collages. But um, I was so thrilled to get out of school. Now, the other thing is that we were pretty, very poor. And I actually started working at 15. I had lied that I was 15. And I ended up being a bike messenger in San Francisco. If you know what that means, that means riding a bicycle up and down the hills all over the place and, oh, wow. uh, del- and delivering messages and doing it. I was surviving and helping my family survive, pay the rent and all that by doing that as well as um, trying to survive in the school. And somehow I managed to do it. And also yes. still go to all the rock concerts I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> and I managed yes. to do it. But I was I was so wanting to get away from any type of education at all, education system. And as I said, it wasn't, I ended up starting post, I started college when I was 38. That's when I really started college. And uh, yes, and I went in as a person recognized as having dyslexia. I got accommodated. For my dyslexia, I had note takers for me in every class. Um, I had lectures recorded so I could listen to them again, and et cetera, et cetera. And I took all my tests in isolation and things like that. And I ended up getting what's called an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, and then a master's degree in governmental studies or uh, and, um, in three and a half years. So I was just zooming right through. I did like six, seven years of college in three three years. Wow. Um, and was that because of the um, the sort of skills that you've been 
you've been given uh, with your 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 one to one tutoring uh, prior to going to in, into college? Yes, it, that opened the door. Yeah, and then I started doing a bunch of other things, uh, which involved taking my experience as a community organizer and and things I had done like at that time, including staging concerts to raise money and and all this other type of thing into the disability world. And I was hired by a series of, of, of I guess they're called charities there, what we call nonprofits here, to become a, a development officer. So I started staging rock concerts. I started staging uh, jazz events. I, um, I even staged the world's largest wheelchair race uh, with the per- <laughs> the largest person in the world. And that took a year and a half to develop. It was just crazy. We had wow. the owners of the local NBA basketball team sponsoring it. We had brought in wheelchair road racers from all over the world. We And then a hotel gave us all their rooms for a couple of nights. It was just crazy. We even had to figure out how to get them from the hotel to the, the beginning of the race and the the army gave us a bunch of trucks to use. It was just crazy that we pulled it off, but it was just done. And and then also, uh, I, I did research and found out that the, the least likely group of people to give um, money to charities were stockbrokers. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I organized an event to raise money specifically targeted at stockbrokers because I know no one else was hitting on them. So I could I yeah. had a better chance to hit on them than, you know, if I went to, you know, where everyone else kept on going to the same well. You know, I was going, yeah. I was digging a new well. And, and a new company heard about this and flew me down to their headquarters and I laid out what I was doing. Uh, what I had done is created a stimulated stock market for a day. And all the stockbrokers were competing against each other to see who would win the day, which was actually basically a year uh, in the time of the game. And and I, could, I couldn't put any bells and whistles on it because I was raising money. So I couldn't give them cough. I couldn't give them. So this new upstart company heard about it, brought me down, said, okay, we'll, put, we'll provide all the bells and whistles. We'll provide a speaker, one of our top vice presidents. We'll even, and back in those days, the biggest problem for me in staging this thing was coming up with the 50-plus computers that you need. This was like 1982, and computers were relatively rare. Yeah. Or 83, I'm sorry. And they said, we'll give you the computers. We'll, you know, we'll set it all up they can, because we want these stockbrokers to use our computers. And, and it was... Uh, the the new company was called Apple. Oh, and there we go. So Apple Apple ended up taking my idea, sponsoring it. They actually offered me a job doing it around the country, and I had to turn them down. But um, but it was just interesting. In 1983, I was you know Apple wanted me to do that. Who knows where I've been if I had taken that job? But anyways, uh, I probably had been dead because it was so hard to do those things. But um, yeah. <laughs> so after I kind of burned out on doing all this stuff, uh, one of my people in one of these places said, "Okay, look, you you got to stop doing this. You got to go to college. You need to get your, and we'll help you set it up, and we'll help you get the resources you need, and and we'll get it." So actually, this they this group this charity group arranged for the government 
group to pay for my college. So that alleviated the cost issue. Wow. And yeah. so I went, and so then I could start college. They actually gave me a, a laptop computer when they were very rare and all these type of things. And again, this made me an extreme outlier. When I was in sitting in the classes at the University of Washington, I was the only person who had a laptop in those days. Now, <laughs> nobody sits there without a laptop. You know, but when I was there, I was the only person. So I was, as again, I was saying I was a, a extreme outlier and had all yes. these access to things. But yes, the answer is that if I had not gotten those ability to learn to read and to function better, I would never have even gotten those jobs as that led to the other supports that led eventually to me starting college at 38. Well, this, it's a testament to the, the, I think, how remarkable and admirable teaching is, um, that, that, that this woman came into your life um, and had a huge effect on you know how your life then panned out and then your own perception of yourself you, you know I've, I've read you talk about the shame you had to let go of around yes. around dyslexia this this person you know uh, gave you the tools to shape your life in a very different way and also you know knew that you you know you couldn't have afforded her rate and was very happy to you know to to let you give her less and also, she was well trained by the in the Orton system of of education. Uh, do you know you know about the Orton dyslexia? I don't. No, I don't. No, no. Oh. I'd, yeah, I'd love to hear about it. So Samuel Orton was one of the very very first people who created the concepts of dyslexia and the understanding of dyslexia, and he ended up finding people who were actually dyslexia. This was in the 30s. And the people who were trained by him and stuff formed uh, the Orton Society, Orton Dyslexia Society, which has now been transformed into the International Dyslexia Association. Uh, so the origin of it is this one guy, actually there were two, I'm sorry for being sexist, it was him and his wife who were both named Orton, who actually did the, a lot of work. And uh, when the National Institutes for Health in the United States actually started studying the brain, looking for the root causes of the, in the brain of the impact of dyslexia, they actually did neural scans of all the students that they could find that had been trained by uh, the Orton Society people. And that helped show the neurological basis for dyslexia that is now pretty much accepted. Right. Okay. So she was fully trained in, in the Alton uh, method of teaching. Yeah. The other researchers that I mentioned are the Shaywitzes. They were researchers at Yale and they were doing also brain research on the dis learning disabilities and stuff like that. And what they came up with in the mid 90s is something that I had been promoting and and arguing for all along. And their research is what basically ended up changing a lot of the general perception of dyslexia and learning disabilities and greatly increased my prestige in the world, that limited world, because I had been 
saying almost all the things that they verified through their research. And what they found is that one, the most important things they found is that one, there was no gender differential. In mm. other words, it was very like, just as likely to be dyslexia if you're a female or a male. Up right. until that point, almost everyone who was being identified was young boys, right? Yes. Young white boys, traditionally. Yeah. The other thing that they found was that um, the major causes of it were issues of poverty. Mm. So uh, lead poisoning, early childhood uh, malnutrition, all these things that cause insults to the brain increase the likelihood birth trauma was another one, uh, was uh, increase the likelihood that you would become dyslexic or you would be mm. dyslexic, which totally went against what all these people were saying, fix my kid, because they were mainly upper middle class people saying, fix my kid. Why isn't my kid acting like a, uh, a kid who's upper middle class? Uh, yeah. And so the systems had to start saying, wait a second, if it's issues of poverty, what does issues of race have to do with it? And also, mm. what does issues of language have to do with it? So I got some studies done of in Washington State and elsewhere of populations of women who were on welfare or state support um, in the United States who had never previously been identified as having learning disabilities or dyslexia Based on the Shaywitz reports, I was writing papers and, and getting these projects going. And the studies end up showing that 65% of these women had dyslexia and had never previously been identified. Wow. So they had gone through the school systems completely unidentified, unserved, and, and ended up on the dole. And then the boys, a lot of the poor boys who had gone through without being identified, and especially poor boys of color who had not been identified, um, went through the system unidentified and unserved and ended up in prisons. So, uh, yes. And this really changed a lot in, in the public and in the government approach to things. And, and we actually were able to force the government to start screening and testing poor women uh, for learning disabilities. And then if they are found to have it, they had to give them interventions and technical support to enable them. They couldn't just say, go to work. They had it before yeah. they went to work, they had to get these interventions. And, and there was a whole bunch of lawsuits and a whole bunch of other things that happened associated through disability civil rights stuff that the normal dyslexia and, and learning disabilities groups had not considered at all. And we were, I was pushing the civil rights approach of these people have rights as people with disabilities and mm. the government had to respond to them as people with disabilities. But if you can prove they had disabilities, they weren't entitled to it. If they, and, it and one of the big problems was all the models, all the concept of how to identify someone as a sexy, it was based on the presumption that they were white middle-class boys in the suburbs. And, and, and they were, and the, the, the model was called the expectation model. 
So if you were expected to do well and you weren't doing well, well, maybe you were dyslexic. But right. But in the culture, poor girls of color or poor boys of color were never expected to do well, so they couldn't be classified as being right. dyslexic because they weren't, you know, they they were doing as was expected, which was badly. And it turned right. out that they they had dyslexia and had been not identified as such. So my my time with the federal government was to fight extremely hard against that expectation model. Yeah. And the the research of the Shaywitzes at Yale uh, gave me all the, 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 the scientific foundation for making that argument. It's amazing. So you so within your work, you, you not only have to, you know, fight for a very malign group anyway, um, yes. you, you also part of that is you have to try and take down institutionalized racism and sexism um, because, you know, it, I mean, that is an inherently racist idea that, you know, that there isn't an expectation for people of color to do well anyway. Um, so, we you know, they shouldn't even be in the conversation. That's right. You got it. And that's what my trainings were all about was uh, breaking down the sexism and racism issues based on scientific research and based on, and, and once again, the traditional dyslexia groups, the traditional organizations that were designed by the parents didn't want to hear any of this stuff and weren't interested in this stuff. And it was like very, very hard to start them to understand. And they also didn't want their kids to be called uh, disabled. They wanted them to say they learn differently or they had different learning styles. And one of my main lines, one of the main lines I did in closing lines in my trainings were, there's no civil rights protection for someone who learns differently. There's no civil rights protection for someone with a different learning style. But there is civil rights protection for someone who has a learning disability. And the disability groups understood that, and the, but the parent groups didn't. And so they were not anywhere near as supportive as they could have been or should have been. But that's water under the bridge a long time ago. And the fact that most of the people like me who are making those arguments are no longer in the picture, uh, that momentum has all been lost. And they were kind of right back to where we were, and especially in adult education and adult literacy training and in prisons and stuff like that. The only good news I can report on that is recently there's a, the man who just newly won the election as being coming the mayor of New York City, who will start in a few days on January 1st, I guess, to be the mayor, was interviewed on one of these big TV shows. I forget which one it is. And he said that as far as he's concerned, dyslexia is all over the place. It's all in the prisons, all in the gangs. Um, yes. and, and that it, and the school systems are completely failing these kids. And that's why, you know, I'm hoping that eventually you guys will be able to get an interview with him because he's the highest ranking of government official who's been talking about this type of thing in a, in a long time. 
I would, I mean, I'd love to. I mean, we've talked about it on this podcast before that um, when we had Steve on, who's obviously the CEO of the charity, um, was saying uh, that, you know, most people in prison are dyslexic. Most people who are homeless are dyslexic. Um, and it, and it, there is something about, you know, lots of people feel this way when they're in school anyway, because it, it certainly targets one form of intelligence, um, is that they're not being catered for and, and they don't feel... You know, it, it it creates that sensation that you you felt when you were at school of, of not belonging. That, that this isn't for me. This isn't something you know where where I ex what I where I excel or where, where the the things that I the way my brain works is um is encouraged. Um, so it'd be fascinating to hear because I'm sure he'd have all the stats to hand about you know the the the, the amount of dyslexia that is in schools and um, and how it causes unsocial behaviour or you know or, or, or people feeling um, well. Violent. Uh, I would say to Steve is that he's probably right, but as of yet, we don't really have the systematic study of it. And there's a no. huge amount of issues that causes homelessness and a huge amount of issues that cause people to go to prison. Of course. And dyslexia may be an underlying element in it, but the, there's a, many other things involved. But we still don't have the comprehensive studies that we really need. Okay, so let, let, let's get into your work. Um, after okay. after you finished, um, you know your education. Um, if if we ever do finish our education, of course, um, and your and your work in the federal government. So, okay, so I uh, first of all, my major love is history, uh, and since I had to retire uh, because of health reasons, I've been writing up history books and publishing them. But that's so when I was in college, the option of uh, getting a PhD in history opened up for me. But then I said, oh, man, this is going to take eight years. I'm already this old, so forget it. What else <laughs> can I do? So the thing was, it was uh, it's called public administration in the U.S. It's a master's degree in government. So I took that, and I got that relatively quickly. And then through one way or another, I got connected to the local administrator and I went to, to get an interview and I said, I went in there and I and this guy was an ex-Marine named Buck Kelly. And he looked exactly like a person who should have a name, Buck Kelly. And, and I kept on wanting to talk about my skills and knowledge. And he kept on bringing me back to dyslexia. And I'm saying, okay, I keep going back to it. And so at the end of it, they, the interview, which I thought was going to be five minutes, which was two hours, he said, okay, you're getting hired and I'm putting you in this office here in Seattle. And it turned out that his son was dyslexic and his son had wouldn't, couldn't compete college, couldn't do anything. And, his, and it was like his son was driving a truck when this guy was a big government administrator. And he was, I think he, he said, okay, I'm making up for my failings for my son by giving you this job. <laughs> and, and so I got the job and nobody knew what to do with me because no one had ever had a presidential management intern in this office. So I said, well, I want to do this stuff on dyslexia. I want to do this stuff on poor people with dyslexia. And they said, okay, great. Go ahead and do it. And I started getting, I got partners for the state. I'm doing this. And then I put on this big, huge conference uh, about the issue with all, kind, all kinds of people from all over. And the second highest ranked person in the the agency, the, the Health and Human Services, 
who had at one point in his career had been uh, Bobby Kennedy's campaign manager for president, came to Seattle because of my conference. Wow. And he, and he said, and well, I was right, uh, especially <laughs> in the office. No one knew what to, they didn't know how to handle me. Here's, here's a guy who's working for the government for a year and I'm pulling this thing off. Yeah. And, and and again, it had to do with my background in being ostentatious because, you know, being trying to pull off all these other things I did without any resources. I said, ah, oh, this is nothing. I can do it. I got a lot more resources here. And the guy ended up saying, okay, I'm going to make women and dyslexia one of my two issues and you're going to come to D.C. And so he didn't want to put me in... Um, any given agency because the agencies were so competitive, he ended up putting me in this little boutique, little agency called the National Institute for Literacy. So, and they they were had direct connections with all the major agencies like labor, health and human services, and education. And so, all of a sudden, here I go from selling beer at the Kingdom, which is a sporting event in Seattle, to a year later holding White House meetings in which 50 different agencies are showing up and wow. are all dedicated to what I was doing. And all of a sudden, the guy who brought me in resigned over some political issue, what I won't explain. But he resigned. And so all of a sudden, you know, I went from being the person of the moment, you know, the with this great protector to being a guy connected to this guy who just embarrassed the president by resigning. So <laughs> I went from being, you know, the new kid on the block with the, all the answers to the one that no one would answer the phone call to. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, a, a very disappointing thing when that happened. But I, you know, I muddle, I keep on muddling. I know how to build back. So I, we ended up, I worked through the National Institute for Literacy to create a contract that developed uh, a, a, a workbook for education systems across the country uh, of how to deal with dyslexia in the adult literacy programs. And because of that, I kept on, I, I was going all over the country, all over the world talking about this stuff. And, and I'm still in absolute shock because how the hell did I get here? Because <laughs> I, I was, I'm just a beer vendor, man. I, I got, you know, how, how did this happen, you know? And I, I but I'm doing it, but just kind of trying to control my ego, which sometimes I didn't do very well. But I was just had to do that. <laughs> and then, uh, and then the, there was a big conflict in the United States over what was called welfare reform, where the Republican parties wanted to limit the number of women who could get welfare and limit the time they could spend. And this is where I was able to go in to the health and human services and fight for the issue about recognizing disabilities. And, I, and we won. And I got all this money uh, to try to do job uh, training. So I, was, I ended up being the keynoter in California and New York and all these other things at their big conferences, their internal conferences on, and it was just crazy. And I was just doing this. It was just insane that this was happening. As far as I could perceive, how did I end up doing it? And and the and the issue was is I kept on coming at it from an adult perspective, from um, 
a consumer perspective and also a professional perspective with the research behind me. So it wasn't like I was just some crazy character off the street saying, do this. I had a lot of elements behind it. And I was doing all kinds of stuff, which I couldn't believe. And then the Republicans won the next election and I was stopped from doing it. (laughs) Yes. And I went from traveling hundreds of thousands, a hundred thousand miles a year or so and speaking in every weekend in a different city or a different state and, and all as a fed to being told you're, you're, you're doing nothing. You're absolutely doing nothing. And I got very sick and almost died. And I had ended up retiring because I was too, I was told I could never work again. So my career was like a flash plan. It was covered like 10 years in the federal government. And I could, you know, I had a tremendous impact for a while, Mm. but we developed a whole these things. And I was actually recognized by the, the people in charge of the disability movement for the federal government. And I got all kinds of award and I did that, you know, but it was all because of that. I had a very different headset, which is that of a radical. I had a mm. very different headset because I had that of a consumer. And mm. I also had the very different headset of, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't raised in the bureaucracy. I hate bureaucracy. I'm going to fight bureaucracy tooth and nail. And I know how to beat the bureaucracy. And yes. so, so, and unfortunately, I got very ill and, and, and also the Republicans won the election, but I could yeah. have overcome that one. But, you know, I had to stop working. So as I left the field, of you know, if you're not 90 percent of living and showing up and I wasn't showing up anymore and the issues kind of faded and it just went away, which is very unfortunate. It is very unfortunate because I should think you were the Republicans' worst nightmare. <laughs> you know. Uh, well, actually, actually, I wasn't, which is surprising, because when Bush came in, he developed his thing called "No Child Left Behind," which was trying to reform the public education system. I'm sorry, the governmental education system again. And yeah. he was actually using the Shaywitz. Uh, research for the basis of what he was doing. Oh, so I was actually in. I was it for a while there. It looked like they were going to actually make me very much involved, and I was actually working with the guy, the white, the guy from the White House was appointed by Bush to implement the No Child Left Behind, and he, ironically, his name was Reed, uh, <laughs> which is his name was Reed Lyon, and. Um, that was a that was a long time ago, and and things have changed and things have faded. And one of the reasons I'm I'm really hopeful of these podcasts is that we can start looking at the issues again from a broader perspective beyond childhood, beyond race, class, race, gender, and bring back all the key elements that we know which is that not all, but a huge amount of dyslexia is related to issues of brain damage. And before Orton came along, there was already a systematic diagnosis of this thing, and it was called MBD, minimal brain dysfunction. And I bet, I think you can guess how much parents like that term. Right. Uh, (laughs) the wants of the parents, but the 
the minimal brain dysfunction is still actually the closest thing we have to what is truly what's going on in the dyslexic person. And is and and I mean, I'd love to dive into this. So, do we have an idea of how that brain damage is is caused? A lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is through issues related to being poor. So, right. it, poor prenatal care, uh, birth trauma, uh, early childhood untreated illnesses, high fevers, things like that, um, infant malnutrition. All these things have been shown to be or uh, things that can cause dyslexia. There are lots of people who have learning dyslexia who uh, come from middle-class population, probably didn't have all those things or any of those things, but they may have. And and the problem, uh, one of the things that... Um, who knows what the birth was like? Who know what the oxygen levels were at, at birth and all this kind of stuff? So uh, even the, the wealthiest of people. Uh, and the other kind of mythology is that there is a genetic link uh, yeah. to it. And, and I was part of the Human Genome Project that took place at the National Institute of Health that looked at all the... And there's suspects, but nothing proven about certain genetic issues that could lead to dyslexia. So there's a couple of you know spots on the you know genome that, if they're weak, maybe that could be the cause. But no one quite knows how there's weak. They're weak, and and so the Human Genome Project actually kind of moved towards disproving the genetic link, and. And the Shaywitz research moved towards showing much more of a organic poverty-related uh, source of most of the dyslexic. Now, white, rich, middle-class, et cetera, boys, you're going to get a very different finding. And historically, that's almost everyone who got tested and mm. because of the expectation model. And now, you know, and and... Now we understand, you know, through the genetic research and also through the uh, Shaywitz's research, that that's that's simply not what is going on. And the vast majority of people who have dyslexia go through the world undiagnosed and unserved and unrecognized. And and as you know and I know, there's a huge amount of emotional baggage that comes with failing at reading and not knowing why. Yeah. I mean that that's for for the people of of your generation that I've talked to for this pod that's certainly that feeling that you are you're stupid that you're thick um that you don't you're you're not getting it like everybody else and 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 it's of course um like your good self like you, you, someone who's achieved a great deal and 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 clearly very intelligent but there's something deeply wrong about a, a school system that that makes intelligent people feel stupid well let me let me uh give one more pitch about something else before we end this. I'm not sure how long we can go, but I, I'll keep going as long as you want me to go. How about that? Uh, yeah, I absolutely do, yes. Okay, is that um, I came up with a solution that was designed not just for kids, but it was more designed for adults than kids, but it could be used with kids as well. And the, the solution that I came up with enabled people to gain knowledge 
and gain information and show their skills and show their knowledge through the use of assistive technology. And so I was advocating that in adult literacy programs, they stop using classrooms, but just use technology and teach people how to use the technology so that they could gain access through the internet, through everything like that, through assistive. Um, and and when I was doing it, it would have cost like $2,500 to $3,000 per person to do that. Now it's, it's nothing. I mean, every, you know, all you have to do is give them a, a, a pad, give them access to the internet, and give them voice access software, which is, you know, basically comes with everything now anyways, and, and let them gain the skills and knowledge that they need auditorily rather than forcing them to do it only one way, which is reading. Yes. And the only systems that seem to be lagging behind in this approach of using technology to share and gain and use knowledge is the adult literacy programs in the United States and in the prisons. They are continuing to try to say, okay, you got to sit down at this desk and learn to read the way you fail to do when you're in grade school. So that's still, you know, something that needs to get done and it isn't being done. And I almost came over to England and this program called the Atlantic Fellowship, in which the British government was going to bring me in to reform their adult literacy program for, and I was going to live in England for 10 months to help them do that. And then the, that's when, that's the Bush got elected and he said, no, you're not going <laughs> It wasn't directed personally at me, but I definitely felt it was personally directed at me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you did. And, and I know that in England, they've done a hell of a lot more with technology and they use technology for dyslexics much better than in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, a great platform run by uh, a chap called Ross who came on the podcast. He owns um, something called Recite Me, um, which is uh, a function for people with all disabilities, people with visual impairments, um, uh, where they essentially use it for the for the web. They you can have the entire text of a website read back to you. Um, you can change the font. You can change, you know, the the background. Because even if you're not in any way, uh, if you don't have a learning difficulty, um, you can read up to twenty five percent better with the right color for your brain. You know, uh, on on a on a piece yep. of paper or a screen, yep. which is uh, yep. fascinating. Back in the day, in about nineteen eighty or so, this was the first of the reading machines uh and you could actually put a book in and it would read to you uh it was the size of a deep freezer and <laughs> it cost forty thousand dollars each wow and i i actually wrote the grant here in seattle that got three of them to come to seattle one for the public library and two others for the uh one for a place called Reading Services of the Blind and Dyslexic. And then the uh, other one was for uh, the Services for the Blind. And so we got those three machines to cost $120,000. Within three years, they were completely obsolete. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now, you know, you, you get all, all this software that is required for scanning and reading of documents are all throwaway stuff that comes in the modern technological packages. And yet, 
they're used by high-level people, they're used in executive offices, they're used in, you know, everything you can think of, except they're not used to teach dyslexics. So, Glenn, I want to conclude uh, just by asking you about your current work, because obviously health reasons stopped you from doing the adult literacy work. You then, as you say, you know, you're, you're a grafter. So you started uh, pursuing a career as a writer. Well, it's, well let me put it this way. Uh, I was nearly housebound for about five or six years because of the illness I had. It was severe chronic fatigue syndrome. There was a clear and obvious cause for it that is recognized quickly as a cause. So it, uh, so I had really no trouble in getting a disability pension from the federal government, even though when, when people were saying, oh, you're tired, so what? You know, but then this was something different, and it was mm. clearly a dysfunctional uh, disease. That, And then when I stopped work, I actually really had to stop almost everything. Uh, I had uh, basically two or three good days a month where I wasn't feeling constantly ill. Uh, and so I started writing uh, as a means of maintaining sanity. It wasn't a career change. It was a way of saying, I got to do something. I can't just lie and watch TV for the rest of my life and degenerate. I got to do something intellectual and, and intriguing to me. So I started at first just writing a series of political essays uh, that eventually I... I um, put together and published as a book called No Sense of History. Um, and it was all, it was commentary on what was going on in the, the 90s and the early 2000s. Uh, and so I, I, I kept on writing because I was trying, to, I, I was still very limited and I'm, I am still very limited in what I can do. Uh, because of the impact of the chronic fatigue, although I'm vastly much better than I I was. And so I decided to start research things and write about things that, you know, people wouldn't normally do. Uh, this again, going back to my radical, you know, perceptions and efforts. And, and I knew that a lot of historians had restrictions about what they could write about. And because they had to, you know, maintain their academic status and all that kind of stuff. So I was able to start writing things, uh, and I could take a very long time to do it. So one of the books I did took me 10 years to write, and it's all about the impact of Phoenician culture on the development of Western religion. And, you know, people don't write about that. I, I was able to, uh, and, and, it, and it interested me, and it was, uh, I was able to do that over a very long time. And I didn't need any money, and I wasn't writing it for money. I was not doing a career. I was doing it mainly to maintain sanity and keep feeling that I was actively functional. So I, I have about nine books out now, uh, and I'm the tenth one is uh, with the where the editor and I are finishing up, and that's the thing that. I ended up eventually doing is that people read my book and said, wow, this is really interesting stuff, but you're, you can't write. You're a horrible writer. Or <laughs> your, 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 your syntax is all wrong. You're, you know, I said, oh, okay, what do I got to do to fix that? So now I have 
a copy editor. So everything I write for publication goes through this woman who, you know, spends a very long time making me sound like I'm a, an illiterate person. So even after, you know, 40 years of recognition uh, as a dyslexia, all the training I've done, all the professional work I've done, everything I do, I still can't write very well. Uh, <laughs> so I have a lot of very good ideas, but, um, you know, in order to com- conform to uh, um, standard English, let's put it that way, uh, I have to, ha- I pay someone a lot of money to do the copy editing. And fortunately, I can afford it. And again, that makes me an outlier. And whether my books sell or not, it doesn't matter. I do it all, I do it all uh, uh, self-publishing and I do it to keep myself from going insane. And, and so when the pandemic hit and everyone was shut down, I said, oh, this is normalcy to me. I've been through this again. I'll write two more books. <laughs> so I ended up writing three <laughs> books during the the first, the, which all were related to each other, about the the slogans used in presidential elections in the United States and where the slogans came from and what they were all about. So I, made, I wrote a three-volume book on that. And that, you know, so I knew how to survive the pandemic because... That had been my life for a long time before that because of the chronic yeah. fatigue syndrome. So, um, so it's just people have to do what they have to do to stay sane. And for me, writing, even though I can't still write well, is uh, the way I say sane right now. Um, that is a great note for us, Glenn, to finish on. I want to thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, and uh, we, we very much appreciate it. Hey, it's like, you know, living in the past. It's uh, great that I can review it again. It's been a while since I've been able to talk about it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, with me, Jude McGowan. My guest today was Glenn Young, And there are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation. Epic is a USA-based non-profit organization Epic creates bonds among caring people devoted to solving global challenges of poverty, food insecurity, environmental degradation, human rights, and making peace. Go to their website, epicprojects.org. If you really enjoyed this episode, please go, rate, and subscribe. Please leave us a little review. It really helps the podcast grow.